0: everybody, welcome to another episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, and I am back at it with you again. And uh, I am just so excited to finally get to this point in the show. We have been building up to this moment for months now because we started this all oh, way back in August and here it is, the end of March, and we finally get to the book of Revelation. Now, in the book of Revelation, there are 22 chapters. That's a lot of chapters, and we're going to go through it verse by verse. So in that, we've got it split to seven parts, and we're going to do each of these seven parts in three shows per uh, seven parts. So it will be 21 episodes on this Now, some uh, parts obviously will go faster, some parts will go a little slower in regards to the amount of text we cover. Tonight, we are going to look at chapters um, 1 verses 1 through 8, and uh, so in this we have got a, a bulk of material to cover, and we have got a lot that we're going to touch on. So there's a lot going on here in just these first eight verses, and we haven't even gotten to the meat of the book yet. So, um, I mean, we we literally look at the prologue and then the greeting to the seven churches. And so we have a lot of information being established here in these first couple of verses. And so we're going to look at it. Uh, we're going to hopefully take... Um, as much of it as an unbiased view in this because there is just so much material and there's a lot that we can can be taken and and twisted and some can be used as like uh, dispensationalism not a bad thing by any means but We have to understand the proper context of all of this book because it is complex, and we're going to look at some of that tonight. So uh, we are going to dig into that. I've got um, my notes here on my screen, and for those of you who don't know, um, I usually don't take quite detailed notes. I'll sometimes compile thoughts. But I took detailed notes and I'm going to probably be doing this at least for the first few shows here until I kind of get my feet wet and get into this rhythm because there's a lot of context. Now, again, I'm pulling from a few sources and uh, there's the expository um, commentary book on Revelation. It's one of my primary sources because I feel it takes us back to the source of the Reformation and it gives us fairly unbiased uh reasonings and understandings and then i have some other books upstairs that i'm going to um, use from time to time and as i do i will hopefully try to reference those and as i remember them if i take content from it uh but there's a lot of material out there there's been a lot of studies and a lot of people avoid it So there's a ton of uh, theologians in the past that just simply won't touch the book of Revelation with a 20-foot pole. And I can't promise you that I'm going to do um, the best job because there's better theologians out there than me. But what I can promise you is that we're going to look at these verses verse by verse, and we're going to look at them within the grouping and then in the chapter and in the context of this book. We will try to put together this big picture and hopefully help us understand what is really going on in this book because there's a ton of stuff, an absolute crazy amount of material in this book. So that's the introduction for our show. We are going to spend probably a lot of time tonight going through it. I can't promise you that this show is going to be short by any means. Uh, So buckle your seatbelts. We are in for a ride. I have a lot of notes and we have a lot of ground to cover. So just as a note, if you are listening to the show, you can become a patron because the show is um, patron supported. It is listener supported. And those who are supporting this ministry are able to watch me on camera as I record the show and they get to uh, you know watch this tired looking guy it's been a long day so um, record the show for him but they get a pre-log and a little bit of a post-log with it too so they get some extra commentaries in there they get the bloopers and all that when I goof up and recording and have to go back and edit and things like that but yeah, it makes for a good recording so they get to see kind of all the little nuances that actually go into the production of the show just something that I offer for him now record the show put it up on an unlist, unlisted youtube channel and uh, they get to come in and watch it at their leisure we've been doing that now for a number of weeks so and uh they seem to like it so that's great i'm gonna keep doing it and uh and in that they also get to listen to this show or watch it whatever they want to do doesn't matter But, uh, so they do that and then they get all the show notes that I produce. They get all the sermon notes I produce and all that. Um, they get to participate in a Bible study we are in. And, uh, so I try to, you know, shell back as much as I can, but I think for, you know, literally a dollar a month, you get a lot of bang for that buck. So listener supported, we are on Patreon on Dying Light. You can check us out there. You can hit me up on, uh, instagram reformed underscore lifestyle and you can find that link in my bio and uh, even on ACast, you can donate through that too now that there's that little commercial at the beginning of the show so that's kind of a neat little uh setup to help to support this ministry as well because there's a lot that goes into this and you know i'm just i'm a pastor so um you know we're making a pastor salary so (laughs) Anywho, that's the the jazz for it, guys. We have so much um, to come at you tonight, and I hope this show is edifying. And uh, I really am excited to finally get to this book. We have been uh, inching our way week by week and topic by topic to get to this point. We have covered the four major views, which will play a considerable role, I feel, in the coming weeks. And months because we're going to be in this for a long haul. So buckle your seatbelts again, strap that thing down, tighten it up. We are going to be in revelation for a minimum of 21 weeks. I'm hoping to do it in that and no more. Anyways, you're probably, so that means you might get some hour long episodes to the flip side. There might be some episodes that are a little bit shorter. So just kind of take that, you know, as it comes, there might just be some shows that are 30 or 40 minutes long. So we went through the four major views. We looked at heaven, hell, and um, and death. We talked about world religions, pagan religions. We talked about the Old Testament, the New Testament, Paul's eschatology. We looked at Peter's and Jude's last week. We didn't get into Second Peter 3, um, but again, it's kind of a big reflection of uh, what Peter was a witness to when he spoke with Christ during the Olivet Discourse. So Peter was a part of that discussion, and uh, we can reflect a lot of that back in that pinpoint so a ton of stuff going on there and we've led all of it up to this point tonight and or this morning however you listen to it it's late as i record it's early for you as you listen or maybe it's late i don't know anyways um that's what we got <laughs> just trying to see if we should kick this thing off already it have been just babbling on here but uh like i said i really want to take um the moment and kind of frame this out for us because it is going to be this is monumental this is um this is a huge undertaking and i really want to stress to the fact that there is so much content we won't cover There is so much commentary that we can't possibly cover. So by all means, continue to do additional research and listen to uh, this show and listen to other episodes um, in this series. Go and watch teachings on this. Go and read other books and commentaries. Do your research. There is just a ton of stuff out there on this particular topic. So what can we get here in Revelation chapter 1? verses 1 through 8. Well, let's read it. We are going to look at the prologue and to the greeting to the seven churches. This is the first eight verses of Revelation. Verse chapter 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads out loud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are sent before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and father to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen i am the alpha and the omega says the lord god who is and who was and who is to come the almighty so there you go there's a ton of things to unpack in these first eight verses there's a lot of content to unpack in these eight verses and so we are going to dig into it and I'm trying to adjust my mic here, as it's uh, sitting like inches from my mouth. So, here we are. Basically, this: Jesus is the winner. There's nothing else that we can render from this. If there is nothing else, we can declare that Jesus Christ is the winner. Doesn't matter whether he. Yeah, you know, or whatever uh, abstract thing Satan does, it doesn't matter what this world is doing. It doesn't matter who the president is, or what the governments are doing. Christ is the winner. Period. End. If we get nothing else from this book, whether we uh, take on all of the imagery and all of the things that you know we can put together the thing that we can pull together and understand is that Christ is a winner. He always was the winner. He always will be the winner. And that is the the bottom fact that we can build from this. So utilize that thought and let's take it to the bank and let's move forward. So this book, as I had um, talked about for a long time, it is a difficult book to understand. There's a lot going on here and many people try to avoid really digging into it. I mean, Luther flat out wanted to remove the book. He had no desires to it. Um, so we get a lot of prominent theologians that just care not to do anything. And I don't even think John Calvin wrote a commentary on it because he just could not wrap his mind around everything going on here. Carl Barth exclaims, if I only knew what to do with revelation, just think about that even some of these some of the most prominent theologians some of the most prominent minds just couldn't get over the confusion that this book brings to them it's it bewilders people the interpretations you know are all over the board and the problem is is because of that it, it leads into all of this you know you, i you probably say it's mysticism or new age believing or um it can lead into obviously dispensationalism which isn't again a bad thing but it leads to it it, it can be dangerous and the confusion that this text does bring leads to so much misinterpretation of the text so we have all of these books and movies out here that go to the most extreme hyper interpretation of end of times i mean just think about like the left behind series i mean that is the most literal interpretation that you can get and i've read the books seen the movies i got the t-shirt no i really didn't get the t-shirt but i did see the movie read the books and it, it it Paints this picture of like what you would think the end of times would be like, and you're you you think to yourself, wow, that just, you know, if if I read the book of Revelation, then it literally would look just like this. There would be a rapture, and then chaos and disorder, and then a government or a world leader comes onto the stage and takes over, and then there's this period of you know quiet and tranquil peace and then all of a sudden you know it just continues to get worse and worse and worse and all these plagues and the bowls and the scrolls and all that happen right so to take it at the most literal interpretation can be dangerous because it strips away all of the rest of what Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse now if we were to take that reading and pair it into what we have here in the book of Revelation verse, you know, in conjunction with what, you know, the prophet Joel wrote about, Daniel and Paul, even Peter, all of these people. We have to look collectively at the entire Bible to understand the end of it. And that is going to be the challenge we are going to take on in these next 20 some weeks is how can we understand all of this text without misinterpreting or judging wrongly on one side or the other. And again, I'm going to do my best to walk us through this. And I can tell you that even the most brilliant minds are just, they just don't care to tackle it because it is so complex. Oftentimes, these commentaries that are written are written in, in by multiple people because it is so complex. So understand that, that this is not going to be something that you can just pick up at first listen and just be like, I'm an expert in revolution now. And uh, I'm going to go start an end of times Instagram page and fear monger people. Like, seriously, d- don't do not don't do that. Don't. Don't do that. Stay away from that kind of stuff. There's too many of them out there that think they know how to engage in the end of times. And sadly, they miserably fail at it. So, as I said, having, you know, a certain interpretation, whether it's dispensational, historical um, interpretation of revelation isn't bad. You know, whether it's a literal or figurative we have to be careful with how we understand it because the text can be taken literal um, and we have to understand when it can be. Because sometimes if we take a text too literal, it could, it could change the, um, the whole entire perspective of the text. It could change everything we understand about it. So as we get into here, our words uh, in Revelation 1.1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are the first five words of this book. Now, generally, when we see, you know, the words, uh, revelation, uh, or, or apocalypse generally means this is the end means that there's something concluding and could we interpret, maybe the revelation of Jesus Christ a little bit differently. Sure. But what we have to understand that this isn't the ending of Jesus Christ. This is the revealing of something that was hidden. This is the fact that Christ is going to reveal to us the end of times. And he does so through his servant, John. And so while we should understand this isn't the ending of Jesus, This is, in fact, the unveiling of what has been once concealed. As Ambrose mentions, this isn't even a concealment of John's knowledge. This isn't something that he knew ahead of time or he um, had, you know, taken away from the Olivet Discourse and bundled it into a little box and sealed it away. This happened when he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos, and we will see uh, that as well. So before our journey begins, let us understand this before we dig into the ultimate type or uh, the ultimate point of this, of these passages here. We understand that this book does have a purpose. It shows us that Christ is the King and he is the victor. He is the winner. It will show us that the, there will be events that are to take place before the end of times. It is not intended to be concealed or hidden away. It is not intended to put a mask over anything or to make things seem confused or uncertain. It is to make events known. Now, here's the other interest, interesting thing, too. This book, as I've mentioned, can get complex and we will try to unpack those as we go along. And it's I think really hard for some people to understand based upon the way it is written. And because of that, we have to understand that we have different types of language being used, different types of literary language being used. So we will first, uh, or across the, the, the time in this book, we will, um, come across apocalyptic, apocalyptic prophecy. We will look at historical, um, mentions and so this letter can be or this book can be a historical book there is gospel proclamation in this and it is a means to bless god's people and so these are just a few elements that we will encounter as we go through this book primarily the first three uh, we will come across apocalyptic language we will come across historical narrative and we will come across gospel proclamation so in light of the blessing john stott makes this statement he says this last book of the bible has been valued by the people of god in every generation and has brought its challenge and its comfort to thousands we would therefore be foolish to neglect it and interesting that he brings this comment because how many churches actually go through and will preach on this book and Again, I've, come, I've heard fantastic preachers, Bible-breathing, Bible-preaching, biblical men who have preached the gospel faithfully. And in every other instance, they are true to the word, and then they come to Revelation and read it in a dispensationalist form and, and take it extremely literal. And I've had a couple pastors in my day that have done that. And I it just, it, it, I feel like it does a bit of discredit to the text if we don't um, preach it properly. And that's why I think most preachers will avoid even touching this book. They just, they don't want it because it can be difficult and confusing. So we know this, that this is the revelation. It is the apocalypse that Jesus Christ will bring. And, and it's not again, the ending, if you would, it's not, I mean, it is right. But that's not technically what this word is being used as here. It is an unveiling of something hidden. The cloth is being pulled back. The scrolls are being opened. Revelation more accurately would be an unveiling of the plan of God for the history of the world and especially his church. And so as we dive into this, we can understand that this is the final reveal. This is the mystery of God being displayed to all people. And as an apocalyptic letter usually contains that the message that God will burst into history in a dramatic and unexpected way, despite all appearances that God's people are facing oppression and defeat. That's interesting. An apocalyptic letter usually contains the message that God will burst into history in some dramatic fashion in an unexpected way. Does it remind you of maybe when, I don't know, Jesus was born in the manger, unexpected God burst onto the scene in that juncture and changed the way the world worked. So, We can look at the manger, right? The birth of Christ as being that uh, unexpected bursting onto the scenes and just kind of coming out of nowhere, right? We have 400 years of silence and then all of a sudden we have this Messiah. So, and most Christians would agree with you that the birth, life, death and resurrection of Christ was essentially the beginning of... The end of times, And that's kind of what we've portrayed here as well. So here's an interesting little nugget um, that I got from this book that I'm using. I'm going to read this paragraph for you. It says, realizing the kind of book uh, that Revelation has greatly influenced our approach to studying it. Some Christians seek to uphold a high view of Scripture by insisting that it always be interpreted literally. When applied to Revelation, this rule bleeds only into confusion. It is true that John literally received the visions recorded in Revelation, but the visions consisted of symbols that must be interpreted not literally, but rather symbolically. This is true to the fantastic imagery in Revelation, such as the dragon and his beasts, and the symbolic numbers such as 7 or 1000 or 666. When we are reading the Bible's historical books, such such as Samuel and Acts, we normally take the plain, literal meaning, unless there is a compelling reason to interpret a passage otherwise. In studying Revelation, we should reverse this approach and interpret visions symbolically, unless there is a good reason to take a passage literally. This is not to say that the visions do not depict real events, whether in John's time or in the future, but the events are presented symbolically rather than literally in Revelation. Now, you may or may not agree with that statement, and that is quite okay. You may, you may be scoffing at the boots right now and turning off my show. That's okay. What I, like I said, want to really stress is the most delicate approach to interpreting this text. And I think the most delicate way we can is to not take everything literally, It is to take everything symbolically, unless noted, and then we break things down and go from there. And so I felt like this paragraph really helped to, you know, lay a foundation to the framework that we will be taking on in this uh, journey here. So as I mentioned, there's a few different ways that this book is laid out. One of them is through a, the apocalyptic prophetic nature. And so as a prophetic book, we can understand how it is often connected with other prophetic writings, such as Daniel 2, where there is the foretold series of four earthly kingdoms, the Babylonians, the medo Persia, Greece, and Rome. So those were the four kingdoms that were foretold in uh, the book of Daniel in the second chapter. So in developing and expanding Daniel's vision of how the kingdom of Christ overcomes the kingdoms of this world, Revelation is organized into seven parallel sections, seven being the number for completion. Each section highlights a portion of the story as the drama advances to the final climax. This drama involves a sequence that is going to happen uh, that, that was going to happen in John's time that reoccurs to the church age, and that will take concentrated form in the final days before Christ's return. So that is the uh, prophetic approach to this book. And that is, again, we are going to see it tied into some of this old text from the Old Testament. We're going to look at how some of these um, pieces can play into Um, into effect how we can look back and interpret some of these and uh, we'll see how that kind of lands on our plate as we go along in this journey so as we move into the historic letter uh, this is the second feature to us is to realize that this book is a historic letter and it's firmly grounded in the times to which it was given uh, it begins with this customary letter format versus, uh, four and five here with the greetings to the seven churches, given the name of the writer, the recipients together with the greeting and also, en- and also ends as a letter at the end of the book. Obviously there's a lot of common common, a lot in common. If I can't cross my words tonight with uh, how Paul wrote and how Peter always addressing his audience and, um, uh, presenting that greeting at the beginning of his letter. Revelation is traditionally understood to have been written, obviously, by the Apostle John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, during his time in exile on the island of Patmos. Some scholars have argued that another John might have written this book, uh, but the testimony in favor of uh, the Apostle is impressive. So most noteworthy are the statements of the early church fathers in support of the Apostle's authorship, uh, these witnesses included second century writers such as justin martyr uh, melito of sardis who was a bishop to one of the churches in which john wrote and Irenaeus, uh, circa 180 uh, who also hailed from sardis and no and new polycarp of smyrna uh, who was also a personal disciple of the apostle john it is therefore been claimed that no other new testament had a stronger earlier tradition about its authorship in the book of Revelation. Equally important for us to note is the writing time frame, the date that this book was written. So a strong consensus of evangelical scholars holds that uh, that John wrote this book in the last few years of the Emperor uh, Domitian, I probably mispronounced that word, so you can send me your mail later. Uh, which happened right around circa 95 AD. Uh, this stating agrees with the early church tradition through Arrhenius, uh, who said that it was given not a very long time since, but almost in our own day towards the end of the emperor's reign. So some scholars do like to argue that it was actually written earlier and uh, it was written even before the fall of Jerusalem, which would have been um, before 70 AD. But most argue that Revelation does not um, look forward to the return of Christ, but only to the prophecies of Jerusalem's destruction. So they use this book to argue uh, that The framing of the date is um, earlier than 70 A.D., and they are, in fact, not looking to the return of Christ, but that they are looking to Jerusalem's destruction, which, if you remember, we talked about in uh, more in depth during the um, Olivet Discourse, and we talked about how we went through um, that time frame and how some of the prophecies used there Point us to Jerusalem, but some of it then kind of catapulted us forward in time. So it is important to this argument is the assignment of the symbolic number six 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 to the mad emperor Nero, the first persecuted Christians, uh, who who first persecuted Christians in Rome. So this is their argument that they would declare Nero to be the Antichrist. So uh, there are important reasons, along with Irenaeus's testimony, for giving. The date of this particular book, first, the persecution described in Revelation involves the beast's demand of worship, which corresponds not to Nero, um, but to Domitian's reign. Second, there are no emperor-wide persecution during uh, Domitian's reign. Uh, there's evidence that severe persecution took place in the provinces of Asia, where the churches of Revelation were located whereas there is no persecution in Asia during Nero's reign. So again, some more debates back and forth on the time frame. Most scholars would argue circa 95 to about 100, uh, the time frame for when this book was authored. I particularly hold to that view as well. And I think most people that I encountered would as well. Um, Again, we talked through some of the Olivet Discourse and we talked about some of the preterist views if you are a full preterist, then you would believe that um, you would probably fall into that camp that the events happened before eighty seventy, and all of those events to that were spoken of in the Olivet Discourse and in the Book of Revelation and by you know, all of this stuff was already done, which we know is not right. I'm sorry. You can be a partial preterist and say that some of these events were completed and some of them have yet to be um some people like rc sproul hold held to that view and that would be okay to state that some of these views are um, that some of these events you know still uh, need to take place and have yet to be fulfilled so our third element which we're going to just kind of uh, hobble through here real quick because again we've got a lot of show to cover Uh, The gospel testimony that we will come across in this book. Uh, It is the word of God bearing the testimony of Christ. God made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So even though John wrote this book, even though an angel instructed him what to write, this book is to bring Christ the glory. (laughs) So the description of how revelation is transmitted gives us insight into the process known as inspiration, that is, the way in which God used human writers to give a divine message. Many of the books contain a message that God gave immediately to the prophetic writer who passed on to other believers. Here, God the Father gave a revelation to Jesus Christ, who in turn sent an angel to to his servant John so that John could write down the message for the servants of Christ in the seven churches. The implications of the divine origin of revelation are significant. First, since God is the perfect being in all things, he has revealed the word is inerrant and true in all that it teaches. As God's word, revelation, uh, and its claims is to be reverently, uh, reverently believed. All of its promises are to be joyfully trusted, and the commands are to be urgently obeyed. It's plain and simple. So I think uh, as we unpack this, we will see how Christ is the premise to this book. And we will um, truly get into a lot of this proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Most commentaries uh, will limit this statement, though, as the testament of Jesus Christ, to mean that revelation is Jesus' testimony to his church, uh, but also the true... But it is also true that Revelation is a testimony about Jesus as the Lord and Savior who is sufficient to meet the needs of his people. So this isn't just, you know, about his testimony to the church, but it's a demonstration and a proclamation of who he is. And this is why over and over in Revelation, you'll hear the angels and the worshipers break out into praise to Jesus and us, we should as well. When we read through the book of Revelation, fan, uh, I love these words from Franny, uh, Fanny Crosby. Praise him, praise him, Jesus, our beloved Redeemer. Sing, O earth, his wonderful love. Proclaim, Hail him, Hail him, highest archangels in glory, strength and honor, give to his holy name. And that is why we see the angels and the worshipers praise him. Holy, holy, holy all throughout this book so i am tremendously blessed to dig into this and we will see how the gospel proclamation is used we will see how the bible in general is um, a divine blessing to all of those who read hear, and keep its message Uh, john will conclude his prologue here with this invitation that he states blessed is the one who reads out loud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near since god originated uh, since god who originated this book is still the god who reigns over all with wisdom and power those who read and believe revelation will be supernaturally blessed even today and i think that as we um, dig into this we will truly experience that blessing to truly know in in the as i try to do this the most simplest manner possible to come and and lay this out and put it down at our feet so as we continue on, uh, we've got, uh, we're at verse four now. So we're halfway there. Yay. <laughs> and we're, oh goodness, 38 minutes in. I think the rest of this might go a little bit quicker. I don't know. There's a lot that had to, we had to set up. Right. All right. So what do we have in verse four? John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and to you in peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Here's verse four. All right. So in our study of Revelation's prologue, we consider compiling evidence that it is John who wrote Revelation was, in fact, the Apostle John. John is a major figure in the New Testament, having been one of Jesus's three closest disciples, the disciple whom uh, he loved, as he conveniently wrote in John 1926. Kind of a, you know, a little bit of a joke within the Christian circles. Oh, I am his most beloved disciple as I pin this gospel, uh, as well as the author of the Gospel of John and the three epistles that bear his name. Uh, we know that Revelation 1 1 identifies him as the servant, um, but I think this is interesting here. A quote from MacArthur describes him further as the elder statesman of the church, near the end of the first century, universally beloved and respected for his devotion to Christ and his great love for the servants worldwide. I think that's a brilliant description here of John as that faithful servant to Jesus. Now, when he writes this letter, we should know that all of the other apostles have already been martyred. He is the last living one, and for a very good reason. He's the one that pins this message. So, if he, in fact, wrote it around... 80, 95, he would have been about 80 years old, not terribly old, but, uh, you know, he was, uh, obviously one of the younger of the original 12, um, and might've even been only just a teenager when he watched Christ die on the cross, uh, which could probably be why he beat Peter in the race to gaze into the empty tomb, you know, a little bit younger, right? Sporty, <laughs> but anyways, so Early church tradition holds that in these late years of his life, John had been leading a church uh, in strategically important cities such as Ephesus. Uh, This fits well within the book of Revelation since John writes this letter to the churches in the providence in which Ephesus is a leading city. This indicates that John is also the humble servant of Christ. The church in Ephesus was founded by the apostle Paul, as we know in Acts 19, and the elders of the church have been converted by Paul and had a profound loyalty uh, to that fiery apostle as Acts 20 notes. Moreover, Paul had placed his protege Timothy in charge of the Ephesian church, Uh, and so John would have accepted this charge in order to complete someone else's work as the successor to a lesser figure in the church so many strong leaders today would refuse such a calling putting a priority on their own career aspirations but john humbly uh, humbled himself to take uh, himself where he needed to be and it's interesting that we kind of pick up some of that dialogue right that timothy was in charge and um, again we don't really have much to go off of in regards to you know, the the ministry that Timothy um, produced in uh, the church of Ephesus. And we don't know really where uh, and when John kind of picked up that reign, you know, or how John, in a sense, took over, maybe took on uh, Paul's position and helped maybe govern Timothy along. We don't really get much details in the history. Um, And if there are historical letters out there, I'd love to see them. Obviously, we know they're uh, beyond biblical scripture, so that would just be more for historical understandings. So the third characteristic in the ministry of John in Revelation is that he is still a growing servant of Christ. And I like to, to really stress that element because for us, it is a lifelong journey. This is not something we will perfect in this life. I don't care who you are. You are not close to being done. You will take your last breath and you will finally get the picture completed. Right. This is as tough as that may be for some people's egos. You are still and you are still an amateur in this whole journey. And John makes it very clear here roughly well past 80 years old, that he is still a growing servant in Christ. And we might think of him as such a great leader, one who was paramount to the early church's formation. Yet revelation will reveal him asking these questions and making mistakes as he embraces uh, what the purpose of this vision is to be. And maybe not quite as bold in his questions as Peter was, Uh, especially like on the Mount of Transfiguration and um, in Matthew 17. But John, nevertheless, will ask us questions or ask the, the questions throughout this book. And so we will encounter those. So as we move along here in his opening statement, we get to the seven churches. And let's. Look at what that means. Now, the Roman province in Asia first appears in the New Testament when Luke describes how Paul desired to preach the gospel there, but is forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak. Uh, and that's Acts sixteen six. 6. Uh, instead, according to a vision he received, Paul travels to Macedonia and brought the gospel to the cities in Greece. And it wasn't until his third missionary journey, beginning around AD 53, just a few short years before he is crucified, uh, not crucified, I'm sorry, beheaded, Paul finally gets to the leading city, um, the Asian city of Ephesus. Stays there for three years, um, building this important church from which, um, from which the gospel seems to spread to other cities. I do want to I don't want to retract, but I do want to make a clarification. When I said close to when he was beheaded, um, Paul's n- known to be beheaded around eighty sixty two 62 to 65, so somewhere in that frame. So it's about 10 years. Close in proximity, but not super close. Like it wasn't like eighty fifty four. But I think, I don't know if there's an exact date off the top of my head. I'd have to do a little research, but I'm pretty sure it was between 80, 62 and 65. So um, anywhere about or nine years here so i just want to make that clear before i confuse anybody or trip anybody up on it but anywho so these seven churches who are they where do they come from and we will encounter all of that obviously as we get into the, the next few chapters um and we will actually look at some text that is often twisted yay i love twisted text so these leading churches here um samaria uh Uh, I just, I I butcher this one every time um, that I come across it, but I'm going to take a best stab at it. Uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I hope I didn't destroy a couple of those too bad. You guys know I'm not the greatest person at some of these um, foreign names, but I am getting better. Uh, so, the best answer here that notes that the number of seven, obviously in the Bible, stands for completion, starting with the seven days uh, that are completed in the works of creation. So, John actually writes letters to seven churches. Their numbers were selected to represent the entirety of the church during the gospel age and the kinds of challenges that would beset Christians of all times. So, this is what we will get when we get into these letters is proper understanding of the audience the context, what the, the, the purpose behind this particular letter was, how does that in, f- in fact play into us? And can these verses be twisted and manipulated into meaning something they don't mean as you have come to know who I am and what I do and stand for? I am incredibly stern on proof texting scripture and i am i even weary oftentimes on proof texting for particular doctrines that i might even believe in because i feel we do a disservice to scripture if we are only pulling out a few verses cherry picking them to try and um defend our position now do do all verses fall into that category absolutely not there are some verses that are like just straight up this is what it says i mean they are clear crystal and then there are some that are kind of like well it can go one way it can mean another thing because this text if if used in this manner could contradict this text in this light and guess what we will see that when we get into revelation 3 especially verse 20 we will hit that juncture when the verse has substance meaning. And, and the fact that people take it and twist it often shows a lot of things that, that a lot of wrong things. And that is why earlier in the show, I really stress that we can't take everything literally. We have to take it symbolically and then we can apply our understanding of literal context to it um, as we move along. So I really want to, um, drive that forward so as we uh, continue on here we get this uh um, threefold description of who christ is here in uh, verse five um now there are obviously a lot of things i kind of jumped the gun but there's a few more things here um that we're not going to necessarily dig into um uh, let me see here like, uh, I'm just looking at my notes trying to see if there's anything I want to cut out because again there's so it just it's an incredible amount of information in front of my face right now, and we can really do us good value if we were to just spend a whole lifetime studying this but i I really wanna really wanna stress this warning there the, the, the understanding of eschatology has has consumed a lot of my free time. When I'm not in ministry uh, or school, um, it has consumed a lot of my free time. And and I think it's fine to read and understand it, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, if we don't get anything else out of this entire study than, the, than that Christ is the victor, then that's good. That's fine. But we have to get to that juncture. And I think what we... Can really what would do us really good is to not understand, or is not to understand the scripture in in a certain context of um, you know, it's all doom and gloom. Because we do serve a gracious God. I mean, we have this, we have it over and over here: grace and peace to you. Peace, a comprehensive term for the blessing that God gives to those who receive his favor. Grace describes the way that God grants this peace to sinners as a free and unmerited gift through Jesus Christ. And so we see that here already in the epilogue or in the prologue. We see that already in the prologue. We already see here in the greeting that we are being delivered this greeting. And the fact is, is that we will get into some hard text but i also want to really stress that don't allow this these types of texts or you know this particular study to ultimately consume you take the time read it study it do your due diligence maybe spend a year on it whatever it may be but take your time and go back and actually spend time in the gospels reading about who christ is and all the things that he has done so as we move into verses 5 and 6 Um, We get this threefold description of who Christ is. He's the first. uh, He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. Uh, So first, he is this faithful witness. It means that Jesus perfectly reveals God and his salvation to a darkened world, having come from heaven, where he enjoyed close communion with the father. Jesus is able to make him known. He preached, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. John three eleven, And Hebrew 1, 2 even emphasizes this here, that while formerly God spoke of by other prophets, in the last days, he speaks to us by his son second jesus is the firstborn of the dead this speaks of jesus christ as the one who conquered death by his resurrection and now rules as lord over life and salvation moreover as firstborn in the resurrection jesus guarantees that there will be a second a third and so on for all who had joined him by saving faith will be resurrected with him in glory by that There will be a second person that is resurrected, a third person, a fourth person, and so on until all of those who are of the elect will be resurrected. Furthermore, it is by his resurrection that Jesus conveys grace and peace to his people even today. It is because of his resurrection that we have this promise that we can partake in that resurrection as well. And then we get to understand that he is, in fact, the ruler of kings on earth. This follows the preaching and teaching in Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, which proclaims, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth. And so for us, it is truly a blessing to know that the true sovereign and ruler over history is Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. And this is where our grace and peace comes from. So. And then we know that he, in fact, (laughs) sits on the throne. Uh, There can be little doubt that when John completed uh, his designation of Christ here as ruler of kings on earth, that he uh, recalls that he has this title to assert to him. And even though at the particular time the Roman emperor would declare himself to be the ruler of earth, you know, the, the premium guy, if you would, John further illustrates here for us that it is Christ who sits on the throne in heaven. And that is where the true ruler over all kings resides. And so now we move into Revelation 5 and 6. We looked at 4 and 5, and we'll, we'll pair up here, 5 and 6 here. To him who loves us and has freed us by his blood and makes us kingdom Priests to his God and Father, and to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. He who loves us points us back to the work that Christ has done for us. James Boyce describes the love of Christ as so great, so giving, so winsome, so victorious, so infinite that we can only marvel at it. It is a love that reaches from the heights of the divine holiness to the pit of human depravity to save and keep us from sin. Perhaps this explains the popularity of one of the most enduring children's songs. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I love this song. My daughter, who is going to be three, sings this all the time, and it's true. And I, and I think one of the things that really irks me about modern evangelical preaching or Protestant views is it, it was, we, we swing the pendulum from one, ang- one angle to the other. It's either God is all love or God is all wrath. And then we try to go back and forth, back and forth and then there's some who try to well God's a little more wrathful than he is love or God's a little more love than he is wrathful and, and and there's a good medium to fall into and it's hard for us to stay in that trench it truly is because we want to we want to you know maybe demonstrate his wrath against the the reprobates or we want to really embrace his love for the promise but i think sometimes we overcomplicate these attributes when we can simply come and say that God will deal justly with the sinner and he demonstrates his love for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so I truly do believe that Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me that he does. Jesus so loved the world. Who's the world? It's me. It's you. It's everybody in my church, everybody in your church. It's everybody in your family. That is who Jesus loves; those who profess who Christ is, and only those who profess who Christ is can do so because they have the promise of the gospel in their ear. Oh, I love this. This, I said, I'm, I'm like a little kid in a candy store, going through this section because it's just amazing, right? because now we get to really understand what he has done here. He who freed us from sin in all of his writings, the apostle John never mentions the love of God without immediately presenting the death of Jesus for our sins because God can't love us. Jesus can't love us without his death being completed. So it is that having pointed out that Christ loves his people in the present, John praises Christ for the supreme expression that his love has taken place in the past to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. This is the first two of great uh, great saving works that John rejoices in completed by Christ in the past. Jesus said, Greater love has no one known than this, that someone would lay his life down for his friends. Jesus acted in this great love so to remove from his people the con- their just condemnation for their sins. And to say that Jesus just freed us from our sins, uh, John uses this Greek verb loyal. loyal. I'll probably mispronounce that word because I'm fantastic at Greek. Uh, it normally means uh, to be loosened or unfastened, right? We have this imagery. Uh, Pilgrim's progress is probably the best depiction, if you would, of this massive backpack, right, s- you know, strapped to our back, and that it always indicates the sin, the weight of sin. Uh, it's often used to take off clothes or unbuckling armor. And so when, when a person uses this particular word, and he's speaking um, of a prisoner or a person being set free, the straps, the bounds are being taken off. So John's statement that Jesus set us free here from, uh, from our sins by his blood uh, just primarily makes this meaning here of Jesus' atoning death on the cross. Now, we can get into the atonement discussion. We're not going to, not for this particular series. We might do it later on. Um, but I will simply say this. Instead of getting into paying the quote-unquote penalty for it, Jesus literally takes our sin from us and dies for us. And so I think to have that here in the book of Revelation just continues to sing to his praise and his glory, because this is the Christ that we serve, that he freed us from our sin and he made us a kingdom, right? We, we get this text here, freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, And that's just, that's just fantastic. Priest to his God and father to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. That just, it just shocks. And so when John considers this past work of Christ, he marvels not only at the removal of sins, but also at the positive results of the salvation. Having freed us by his blood, Jesus made us a kingdom. And so when John speaks of this blood, uh, he invokes images of this Passover by which the nation of Israel is delivered from the death and is set free in the Exodus. God's angel obviously comes uh, upon Egypt, visiting every home except those who are marked uh, by the shed blood of the sacrificial lamb. And in this way, God is pointing forward to the death of Christ that uh, truly removes the guilt of sin. John now adds more language that looks back on the Exodus um, when he speaks as believers, as a kingdom of priests, you shall be measured by my procession among all people. God told the Israelites, "You uh, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation as written in Exodus 19. So John is reverting back to some of this Old Testament language and painting us this picture here. That we have this, the fulfillment of this, that by the death of Christ we are the fulfillment. Now that we are a kingdom of priests and preachers of Christ's gospel. And again, there's a lot uh, that can be unpacked in this particular settlement here, but we are going to uh, continue to move forward and. Cover the last couple of verses in this here. Um, but I do want to mm-hmm. take a quick pause here and clarify to Him be the glory as we um, get here at the end of verse 6. Um, so these verses here five and six present so many praises praise songs to the glory of christ in the book of revelation it is only fitting that these verses conclude essentially with our first doxology to this praise to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever all men later doxologies will also add to the name uh to the name of christ such as thanks honor power wealth wisdom might blessing So this first doxology lists up the glory and dominion of Christ forever. Glory refers to the splendor and worthiness of the exalted Christ. And dominion here refers to the right to rule as sovereign Lord. And so I think it is a perfect conclusion um, to this this little segment here in verses 5 and 6. So now let's get to verse 7. Behold, he is coming up with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who are even those who pierced him and all the tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. All right. These last two verses. There's a lot to unpack here in these, but we will um, continue streaming forward here. <laughs> so what we have is Christ coming in the glory Every eye is going to see him, even those whom they pierced, and behold, he comes. Now, interesting uh, that we get to this juncture, right? Because this really reminds me back in Matthew 24 when Jesus says that the heavens will split, right? Because John says he's coming in the clouds. Jesus makes that statement the heavens will split, he will appear with his angels, and then he will send his angels to collect. Um, his elect. So we, we already know that this is the glory of his coming. We already know that every eye will see him. John speaks here of Christ coming. Uh, He specifies that his return will be visible to all. This teaching rules out the idea that it's merely a spiritual coming. And John does not say that every, uh, and John does not say that every mind will perceive him, but that every eye will see him. Uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote this on this account. The Lord Jesus Christ will not come spiritually for in that sense, he has always been here, but he will come really and substantially for every eye to see him. Even those uh, unspiritual eyes will gaze upon him with hate. And so it's very important to understand this, this little couple of words here, because right now I'm, I I have somebody messaging me on my Instagram page telling me to go and look at this guy who was born in Iraq, who apparently is the the promised Messiah, and he's referencing scripture. It's completely heretical, absolutely heretical. And he's like, well, this is who Jesus even promised. No, Jesus didn't promise anything in Matthew 24, because what Jesus promised in that was himself. What Isaiah promised was Christ wasn't anybody else. It was Christ And so we get that every eye will see him. This, again, is not going to be a Jesus that just appears out of the woodwork. He's not going to be in the woods. Jesus gave us those warnings. He's not going to come on TV shows and do radio appearances. I can't have him in the studio with me doing a podcast. He is going to shatter the skies and every eye will see him. That ends all speculative readings into these phony, fake, heretical Crazy, loony people who think themselves as Christ angers me, righteously angers me. And I think Spurgeon nails it, too, that even those who hate him will see him. And interesting here that John uses this language that even him whom they pierced. Well, we know that when he was hanging on the cross, he was pierced. Right. Um, but. We see that this is a reflection to those who rejected Christ, even those who pierced him. In addition, there will be great sorrow. All the tribes on earth will uh, wail on account for him. And making these statements, John is echoing a prophecy from Zechariah 12:10, which states, and I will pour out of the house of David. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look to, on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for their only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. When they look on to me, they will weep, they will be, they will mourn. So it's pretty evident here that even those who reject Christ will see this this isn't again spiritual this isn't anything that's um can be read into the skies will shatter every eye will see him for christians john's announcement is the most exciting news that we could ever hear john prompts our excitement when he begins it with behold since every eye will see him behold we Will ourselves witness Christ's returning in glory. And and we talked about this in the episode, I think two, in the little segment on Paul, when he was writing to the church of Thessalonica, they were grieving because they had lost people. Their family members and church congregants had passed away, and they were fearful that they would miss out on the resurrection. But What we know and what Paul illustrated is that they will partake in the resurrection as well. Since every eye will see him, behold, we ourselves will witness this glory. It may not happen in our lifetime. It may not happen in our kid's lifetime, but we will partake in that. See, doesn't this just bring excitement i could care less about the rest of the book i i'm just i want verse seven i want to cling to that promise to be able to just proudly exclaim that it just makes me so excited the prophet isaiah foretold christ's birth behold the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they shall call me emmanuel none of us however are privileged to witness the birth of christ Angels come later and told the disciples about Jesus's resurrection. Come and see where they lay. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. We don't get to partake in seeing that. We get to partake in seeing the clouds and the sky shatter. That is a magnificent promise. I am so excited for that. Behold, he is coming in the clouds. Are you ready to meet him? The Holy Son of God and the Sovereign Lord of all history, all of your sins have been washed clean by his blood on the cross. You have been justified through faith in in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul once addressed a man who understood the urgency of the situation. The man asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul answered, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16, 30 through 31. He is coming soon to gather his believing people and judge the world for its sin. Nothing, absolutely nothing is more urgent for anyone than to believe in Jesus Christ, trusting him as Savior. And you can only do so if you have been given this promise that Christ forgives you of your sins. That's verse 7. Now we get to verse 8. The sovereignty of God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, we won't spend a ton of time in this section, primarily because we have looked in depth at all of these attributes of God, because from this section, we can pull the sovereignty of God, the eternity of God, the self-existence, the omnipotence, um, all of that. We've gone through that extensively in our attributes series. So turn back and we will talk more about that. But I kind of want to highlight this one little attribute here before we conclude today's show. The book of Revelation brings a message of great solace to Christians, good news that is centered on the sovereignty of God over all things. And while I'm not a huge fan, John Piper does write and make this book um, titled God is the Gospel, the very truth that God is uh, of who God provides the good news for those who belong to him through faith. So I've never read it, not a huge Piper fan, but uh, he does coined that book. God is the gospel, and that is rightly so. Uh, We would never know this good news unless God spoke to us first. Uh, This too, we would never understand Revelation or any of the end times unless God speaks to us. And, And it bears good news. It bears such good news because it is God who addresses his people. I am the Alpha and the Omega. So one reason God speaks in this verse is to validate and verify everything that John will disclose in the following verses and chapters. And only at the end of Revelation will God speak again to declare his sovereign purpose and to validate the message of his book. And he is seated on the throne, said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Revelation 21 5. And so we get this. We get this imagery of the God who speaks, and we see that all throughout Scripture, and even going back to the Old Testament to Exodus, when he when when Moses asks, "Who should I tell these people? You are?" God says, "I am," and so we hear that echoed throughout the New Testament, and I think that is why we get it here in uh, verse eight when God says, "I am." Christians hear the voice of Jesus. God says, I am the Alpha and the omega, an expression that Jesus will apply to himself within this very chapter. I am the first and the last and the living one, as we will get to verses 17 and 18. And we also hear of Jesus' great I am statements throughout the Gospels. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the vine, and you are the branches. These I am statements show that Jesus Christ is the one uh, who is with God, who says in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. This means that Jesus was present when Moses heard God speaking from the burning bush. This is Christ who is present at all times and all places and always was, always will be. So that's a lot to chew on. And we only went through eight verses. There's a lot to unpack. We have a lot more to go in part one with two more sections to do and uh, that at the end of part one will take us through the end of the letters and so again we will pick up the pace a little bit here in the next two shows uh, as we will conclude uh, through chapter uh, three so in the next two shows we will actually cover a chapter and a half so we will move uh, a little bit quicker but i think this show did a fine job at kind of setting up the context and getting us prepared for these next couple of shows so it's an hour and 15 minutes long we're gonna probably go a little bit over as i close down the show those who are lo- uh, watching the video as i pop my knuckles um are at uh, about an hour and 25 minutes So i think an extra 10 minutes of uh pre-log there that they get to listen to me babble um i did have just a few minor things to clarify as we close the show off first is uh, again, we sell merchandise for Undyne Light. You can get shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and all that jazz. I love the quality. Uh, I have looked at vendors to see if we can find anything that's any cheaper, but most of them are pretty well in the ballpark that we're at. So if there's a particular quote or Bible verse or anything that you want on the back of the Undying Light shirt, I will gladly create a run for you, and you can order that shirt with that particular quote uh so anything any theologian any bible verse that you want i'll add it uh the other thing too is if you are interested in knowing a little bit more about this logo software that i use make sure you dm me and we can talk about it i've uh, had a few people who have gotten it and they just absolutely love it and I again, I use it exclusively because I can just sit here and look at my notes and grab Bible verses all day long out of it, and just go right to those verses without having to, you know, Google search and this and that. So it's got uh, an entire digital content uh, library all right in front of my, f- uh, right at my fingertips. So it's a fantastic piece of software. You can get a copy Undyne Light. Um, it's Logos.com forward slash Undyne Light, and you can get a free copy. And you can just start to build your collection that way, or you can use my promo um, off of that link and get a basic starter, and you'll get some free books from that, and uh, you can build your library on top of that too. So whatever you, whatever you know, floats your boat that week. So it's a great piece of software. I love it. It is probably one of the most beneficial pieces of um that i've used in my ministry and it's great for people who are just you know regular christians you know who want a digital content you can put it on your mobile phone take it anywhere you go i love it because i can quickly access my study bibles and pull up commentaries notes anything that i need right on the right on the go it's amazing and of course the show is listener supported so if you um want to help support us patreon.com forward slash undying light or you could just google search that and it'll take you right to our page for as little as a dollar a month you can come alongside and get all the behind the scenes exclusive looks at all the just stuff that we do and i think you would not be disappointed in joining this growing family um, so next week, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to pick up at verse nine. And like I said, we pick up the pace and we will cover a lot of ground. So we are going to go one, two, three, four, five, all the way through chapter two, verse 11 is going to be next week, next week's show. And we will continue plowing forward in this series. So we will look at the. Um, this text and continue to dig into it and hopefully um, we do it justice I think we covered a lot of ground today I'm very pleased with this show and I hope that you guys enjoyed it and I would love if you could share this out with your friends and church family whoever it is share it out and uh, let's get some excitement around this series because that would be um, a huge promotion for the show because if you don't want to come alongside us and any of the others, you know, with the patrons and that, you know, the, another beneficial thing that you could help us is subscribing, sharing, leaving us a review. That gets us, you know, out into the bigger pool, if you would. Right. The more people that see this show getting action and traction, uh, the more it gets produced out into the other feeds and things like that so please come alongside us that manner too if you would and we will continue growing this show and plowing through scripture and speaking it and teaching it just as it should be so ladies and gentlemen that is it for me this week we have done quite a long show probably the longest one i've done by myself um ever but it's rightly so we are going to be going through a ton of content so that's it we'll see you all next week god bless